0: Welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I am Daniel Vincent here with my co-host Sean Cheetham. Um And today we're going to be doing, uh, deviating I should say, from our uh, series through the London Baptist Confession, the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And we are going to be uh, responding to a video that Leighton Flowers, Dr. Leighton Flowers did in which he criticized our very first episode um, of our podcast called, called Calvinism and Evangelism. Um, And so, and to give some background to those of you who haven't listened to it, um, we were responding to an article that Leighton had written, um, called if Calvinism is true, why evangelize? And we were uh, responding to that. Um, and so he took an entire show to uh, rebut our, or respond to our podcast. Um, so here we are responding to his response, um, So we're not going to be going through the entire video. Uh, His video is over two hours long, um, but we wanted to highlight some points in the video that we thought were important to address. So we're going to be doing that. We'll be playing through those parts of his video so um, we can hear it as we're speaking. And so you can actually hear what he's saying, um, and then we can respond to it as we go along. Um, So this episode may be a little longer than normal, but um, we hope it's edifying and uh beneficial to you all. So with that, we're gonna go ahead and get started on this. I'm gonna share my screen.
1: And as Dan is uh pulling all that up,
0: uh I do wanna
1: reciprocate a little bit of charity uh that Leighton just showed to us. He was very clear at the beginning of the episode that uh he felt that we had been um reasonably kind to him and he did pay us a compliment in that regard. So I want to reciprocate by saying that um, Layton uh, is also very kind and charitable in his video. Uh, I do think he uh, misrepresented us a little bit, and we will go into that. But I don't think that was out of malice on his part. Um, so I, I, I do just want to pay that respect and sort of set the tone for the podcast in that regard.
0: Agreed. Yeah, this isn't this isn't an episode to you know just go out with our fist swinging and bashing Layton. Uh, we want to certainly be respectful in our response, um, but we also want to stand for truth, and we believe that he's in grave error um, in, in his views, and we want to address uh, where we can. So with that, we're gonna start off um, with our first section of the video here, and then we will we may stop and, as we're playing and, and talk about it, um, but uh, here we go.
1: Pat, would you like to uh, start off with some of your comments there, Dan?
2: Yeah. Okay, they just give a summary of the article. Not a bad summary. Um, I, I might take a little bit of issue with a few things. Um, let me uh, pull this up here so that you can see it. Um, this is the original ar- article, and this is kind of how I conclude, and this is a point that he doesn't really touch on that I wanted to kind of touch on. Um, so The next time a Calvinist argues, quote, God ordains the ends as well as the means, just remember this does not avoid the charge of theistic f- fatalism, but it actually confirms it. And what what my point is here is that oftentimes when the concept of fatalism, which, by the way, if you just pull up a basic, you know, Google search of fatalism or what what is fate, uh, the development of events uh, beyond a person's control, regarded as determined by supernatural power, it's fated, the course is fated. William Lane Craig refers to, uh, you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith kind of Calvinism as as a, a fate type of Calvinism. High Calvinism is, is fatalistic by the, the definition of the terms used by most philosophers um, because ultimately it is it, now they don't like the term fated because it sounds impersonal to them. But um, the original term for fate is not impersonal. It is, it is originally comes from uh, gods, not our God, but gods determining the fates. It's, it's from the fates come from a, a, a theistic view, not obviously the Christian theistic view, but it is originally, it originates from that. And it, it's just really just saying that it's beyond the individual's control as to what will come. That's really all it's talking about. And so, um, whenever a Calvinist, whenever, you're talking about, well, you know, this seems like fatalism. And then they say, well, God ordains the ends as well as the means that all that, all that is is a restatement of determinism. All you're saying is God determines everything. And so if you're objecting to the fact that God determines everything, and then they say, yes, God determines everything, they're not giving you an answer. They're just restating the objection, the problem. And so when you say, uh, okay, then how are we responsible, and how are people responsible, and how are I'm responsible for my desires and my choices, if God determines my desires and my choices, and they say, well, God ordains, uh, God determines not only your desires, but your choices too. That's not an answer. That's just a restatement of the reason that you're bringing the objection in the first place. And that's, and that's all I'm, I'm pointing out. In fact, their system logically follows. Again, notice I say logically follows. This is the entailment of Calvinism, not their actual practice. There's a difference. This is what I was acknowledging in the very beginning of the article was just because that the system logically entails this to be true doesn't mean that this is necessarily the way they act. And that's a blessed inconsistency. I'm glad that Calvinists don't act logically consistent within their their claims. Um, Otherwise, they would follow the path of people before them who became hyper-Calvinistic or anti-evangelistic, saying to people like William Lane Carey, you know, William Lane Carey, sit down. If God wants to save the lost, he'll save them. He doesn't need you. Um, and, and those kinds of, of uh, very, quote-unquote, consistent uh, hyper Calvinist, um, I'm glad that the Calvinists that are leading in the movement today are not like that. Um, the question becomes, will the next generation, uh, because history happens to repeat itself, will they become more of a frozen, chosen type of inward-focused group of people? Well, uh, if God ordains them to, they will, I guess. If God ordains history to repeat itself and the Calvinism become— overtaken even as phil johnson predicts will happen overtaken by a hyper form of calvinism and it dies back out and, and it gets overrun then it's either because god ordains it to happen or because it's a, a system that logically entails uh, this kind of fatalistic thinking and therefore kills itself out um and That's so probably good to stop this-
1: there okay all right uh did you want to start dan or should i start
0: yeah so i guess the only thing i would i would say in passing to this is um, in the comparison between theistic fatalism and actual fatalism, uh, I believe it's a category error to say that they are both the same. Um, yes, they both have determinism um, as part of it. However, um, they are not really the same in terms of uh, the players behind, uh, you know, behind the curtain, so to speak. You know, God is a God is a personal being. Where, where there's not just some fates out there who are cutting the strings or or just arbitrarily um, picking what is going to happen to people Um, it's not just a blind cold fate um so it's very different in that sense um so to to compare it and i believe he does this later on he he starts to compare it to greek mythology Mm. um and that i don't believe is is falling in the correct categories
1: Yeah, I don't know if our audience has uh, read the uh, play Oedipus Rex, but that's something I had to read in high school. And the fatalism that's promoted in there is essentially, it doesn't matter what you do, the ends are going to happen. And that's what we're trying to emphasize in our original podcast. In Oedipus Rex specifically, uh, Oedipus is told a prophecy that he will... Uh, marry his mother and kill his father. And he goes about avoiding that all his life, only to come to the end and realize he didn't actually know who his his mother and father were. So he he ended up doing both those things. And what we were trying to emphasize in the podcast, and I was a little disappointed um, with Leighton's interaction on these two texts. Uh, I brought up Acts 4, and he seemed to be taking that in the context of I was trying to prove exhaustive Determinism from it, which I was not, which I can understand why he would uh, might think that because that is frequently a proof text for um, exhaustive uh, decree of all events, and I would agree that it is a good proof text for that. But my reasoning in bringing it up was that we have an event that's foreordained. So does that mean that Jesus doesn't have to go to Jerusalem in order for it to be filled fulfilled because it's it's foreordained? And the answer is, well, obviously no, that's the means by which it's going to be ordained. If he didn't go to Jerusalem, it wouldn't happen. Same thing with Acts 27, which um Leighton skipped over. He started that section and then skipped over the end of it, which I was a little disappointed in. Where Paul gives a prophecy saying the crew of the ship will be saved, uh, physically saved, from uh drowning because they were in a storm. And then later says to some that are trying to escape on a skiff if you go out on that skiff you won't be saved as a calvinist i I reckon i reconcile these things we have a, a foreordained end god can't be wrong when when paul prophesies he says that god sent an angel to him told him they would all be saved that that's determined he can't be wrong about it and yet at the same time paul says if you don't do this you won't be saved so there's a very real sense in which I, a Calvinist, can say, hey, if you don't go out and evangelize, someone might not be saved. Now, obviously, you will go out and evangelize because uh, that is the means by which God has ordained this to happen. That's true. And we'll probably get into Leighton's argument about um, God ordaining that a little bit later. But at least on the, the top level, we can, as Calvinists, can say, if you don't go out and do this, this won't happen. But you will go out and do it. So that that was a little uh, that was a core aspect of what we were trying to get across that I don't think was interacted with very well.
0: Yeah, I, I think here he's trying to um, just point out something that he thinks we miss in the article, and I do appreciate he's trying. He is trying to distinguish between okay, what are arguments allegedly um, affirm. In their logical conclusions and what we actually practice. I, I do appreciate him trying to make that distinction. Um, however, we would disagree that even the logical conclusion uh, leads to that point. Exactly. All right. Let's move on to the next section here. We're going to be jumping around quite a bit. Again, this would just be too much um, to it would just be too much to go through if you we were to cover the entire two hour video. Um, but we want to be able to hit some of the main points.
2: If it's because what God tells us to tells us to, and of course we need to do things that God tells us to, but I believe that the greater motivation for doing what God tells us to is love for the people, not obligation to the law, not obligation to what we're told to do.
0: Now I do want to point something out here. Um, this is interesting. So he's saying that we need to, obey God's law because we love the people, at least in this particular sense with regards to evangelism. However, the first table the law says that we are to love the Lord, our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second greatest commandment is like it. Not the first, the second is that we love our neighbors ourselves. So love for neighbor flows out of love for God, which is obeying his commandments because Jesus said in John chapter 14, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if we love God, we will obey his commandments, and therefore we will love our neighbor and want to see that person be saved, um, and we seek to share the gospel with those around us. So I think that's something important to point out.
1: That'll become important later when Leighton asks us to address whether Paul is more loving than than God in Romans chapter 9.
2: Right but because we genuinely desire the salvation of the lost, because God genuinely desires the salvation of the lost. Now, this is where it becomes practical in our theology. This is whenever evangelism becomes rubber meets the road kind of things, because if I'm sitting in a coffee shop, it just actually happened to me probably three weeks ago, sitting in a coffee shop and, and I see an individual um, who looks like they're struggling with something? They're having an issue, and it's obvious they yeah, were on the phone with somebody. They're they're not happy. You can tell they are in a distraught position. Um, anybody who knows me, my wife uh, would would attest to this fact. I am not um, extrovert believe it or not, people see, see you on, a, you think you're a teacher and you're you're teaching in front of lots of people, you must be an extrovert, which is not true. Most teachers, actually, most preachers and teachers are introverts, not extroverts. Most theology geeks, a lot of us theology geeks are introverts. We like to sit around with our books and read and, and to study and understand things. Um, we're not naturally extroverts. Um, and therefore, it, sometimes it's a challenge for us to do individual personal evangelism. Now, I was raised in an evangelist home. My dad was an evangelist, and so I learned to to be an evangelist and to, to confront, to talk with people. But my natural inclination is, you know, to kind of avoid conflict and avoid situations. And this person was obviously in a conflicting situation. Um, and in those kinds of situations, um, the motive for the reason that you're talking to that person um, is really valuable because if if you believe now, just look deep down, and again. I, a Calvinist could be in that situation. I could probably pick a hundred Calvinists and put them in that situation and, and a hundred Calvinist um, and a hundred non-Calvinists, and just as many Calvinists would respond the way that they should have as a non-Calvinist. I'm not trying to say that the, the that the doctrine itself is necessarily the motivation for why one will evangelize and one not. not. Like I said before, it's a blessed inconsistency. I think that uh, that many Calvinists are still evangelistic and I'm, I'm thankful for that. In other words, they're not, they're not acting as their their system dictates that they, they could act if they took it to the logical extreme, which I'm thankful for. But hear me out. If you believe that that person, absolutely 100%, you believe that that person was died for, that Jesus wants them to come to salvation, Jesus genuinely desires for their salvation, which, by the way, some lower forms of uh, infralapsarian type Calvinist do
0: a question I would have for Layton here is okay if god is not sovereignly controlling uh, or or hasn't i guess sovereignly chosen a people in the sense that we would say so um is he saying that whether or not you save that particular or whether or not that person is saved is dependent on you as a person ultimately that that i think might be a question to uh, to pose to him mm-hmm. Because if you don't believe that God is sovereign in the process of evangelism, then it ultimately depends on your um, your methods, your message, the way it's presented, and if that is not done correctly, then it's really on you if that person goes to hell or not. At least you can you've contributed to it to some extent.
1: So I do I do want to note in passing that I am also an introvert, so I. I... <laughs> feel at least a little bit where where he's coming from there um uh he goes on to say uh, essentially that the reason why someone would evangelize is because they they think that jesus is bought for that person's sin now as a calvinist i have multiple reasons for evangelizing one of them is God commands everyone everywhere to repent. And that's just, it's just a command, regardless right. of whether or not the person is going to repent. It's a command that needs to be shown to the people and that will either uh, lead to their repentance or it will lead to their condemnation. But even their, in a Calvinistic perspective, even their condemnation is ultimately glorifying to God. So I do have a reason to evangelize that um, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with whether or not they will be saved. Just like Leighton here has presented a reason for why you would evangelize, and it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with they would be saved. So again, I'm not quite sure if this is actually an objection. He seems to think that we wouldn't have any other reason aside for, well, maybe they're elect, whereas he has another reason, and so do we.
0: Yeah. And I think it goes back to what he talked about in his article initially was this somehow this false dichotomy between love and law that he appears to have given, you know, it's either you're doing it out of love for the person or you're doing, you know, or we would say that we're doing it out of law. And in this video, he's clearly trying to say, no, 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 we can do both, but love should be the primary motive. That's Mm -hmm. at least how I see it. Yeah. Um, And we, we would, we would agree with you. We can do Mm -hmm. both. We can absolutely do both, but we, we understand according to how God's law is laid out, that love for God comes first. And that yes. love for neighbor flows out of our love for God. Exactly. But you cannot have uh, love for neighbor without loving God first, which is submitting to his law. And that's really where we say, okay, we can do both. We love God by obeying his law, and we love our neighbor as an outflow of that.
2: Say. They believe God absolutely desires the salvation of every person and that he, and some of them actually four point types uh, would uh, say that the extent of the atonement is for all. And that may be another uh, broadcast where we can talk about an inconsistent application of Calvinism, um, which you have God genuinely desiring the salvation. This is why I was saying there's some Calvinists who would be just as active in evangelism in this, in this regard. But what I'm confronting is true five point Calvinism, which ultimately claims, as a particular Baptist would, that God has particularly paid for the sins of a particular people, the elect, and everyone else he has passed by. Statistically speaking, that person is probably not elect. Now, you don't know that and you can't know that. And the Calvinist would say, I can't know that. I can't know whether that person's elect or not. But So,
1: yeah, Yeah, I was about to say, pause it right there. Why do you say it's statistically probable that that person is an elect? Because the only reason I would say it's statistically probable is you have verses like uh, narrow is the road that leads to life and few will find it. And wide is the path that leads to destruction and many will find it. So both our systems say, assuming Leighton takes the same interpretation of that passage that I do, I know that there are some more post-millennial Calvinists that do think that the majority of humanity will be saved. But um, from my perspective, I, I do think it'll be a minority, not a not a tiny minority necessarily based on Revelation, but uh, uh, Revelation the book that is, uh, but uh, uh, a minority nonetheless. I would assume Leighton has a, a similar view. That's why he's saying that we would, a minority of people are elect. But from his perspective then, again, if a minority of people are being saved, you're saying that it's statistically improbable that that person will be saved also from your perspective, so if the answer is if the question to us is statistically that person's probably not elect, why evangelize? could I not turn around and say, Well, statistically that person's probably not going to be saved, why evangelize to which he would normally fall back and say, Well, that person was bought by the blood of jesus, so i'm I'm here to try and Uh, show them that love and also that uh, there is a chance so I'll I'll act on it and those are reasons that are similar to what we were discussing before we have reasons that we would want to present the gospel to people it's a command and uh, people need to know it regardless of whether they're going to follow it or not Um, God God's honor just in the proclamation by us demonstrating who he is and from our perspective there is a chance as far as we know that that Person could be saved, so it, it, it ends up being this the same reasons. I'm not sure that that fundamentally is a critique of our system.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. He really doesn't have the answer. He he has to admit to some extent that there is a secret will of God, which I think he does earlier on. Um, but that God must, yeah, like you said, this isn't really an argument because if the chance, uh, if it's based on the chance of someone being saved. And you have the same problem we do, if it's based on that. So mm-hmm. it's not really an argument or critique against us. We do it because we love God. We love our neighbor. And we know that God could save that person. He very well might. They very well might be elect. We don't know. That's not for us to know. Yes, we do believe in the secret will of God, which I, I think you would as well, Leighton. Um, we, or secret will in some sense. Not in obviously in the sense s- we, meant, we mean. In, some, in the sense that he doesn't know what is to come. Yeah, or exactly who is saved, who is going to be saved.
1: When we get to the police car or the police officer example, uh, he basically admits to a secret wall there. All right.
2: In the back of the mind, you do know that it's very likely that they're not. It's very likely that God really doesn't love, salvifically speaking, that person. And can that motivate you, whether as to... If you're going to say something to this person, if you're going to reach out to this person and offer help to this person or not, Um, especially if you're inclined, like I sometimes am, to go your own way and to do your own thing or think, well, I got a meeting or I got this to go to and thinking to yourself, you know, no matter what I choose to do in this particular situation, if that person's elect, they're going to get saved regardless of my involvement. So maybe I don't get involved because that.
0: And Leighton, we hear what you're saying. However, this goes back to our original argument about means... We do believe that, yes, someone will be saved, regardless of whether I personally share the gospel of that person or not, if they are chosen to be saved. However, we still believe that the gospel must be preached to the world in order for people to be saved at all, um, because God has decreed that method and, it, and i I believe I brought this up in the first in, in this episode about Romans chapter one. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe this is the means by which he has chosen to bring about salvation through belief in the gospel through god's work and so we believe that this this actually must take place in order for in order for um people to be saved and so if i do pass that person by you know we should certainly seek to share the gospel with people but if i do pass that person by Yes, if they are chosen to be saved, they will be saved. It might not be through me. It might be through Sean. I I don't know. But at the end of the day, we do rest in God's decretive uh, will and and his means to bring about. But that doesn't uh, lessen my desire to share the gospel with others. And it doesn't lessen uh, the the, uh, command, the power of the command for us to go and share the gospel with those around us. Now, we might disagree on how we're to evangelize um but the this the same theology is there and you would say that we hold to that inconsistently because we don't practice that we are actually uh desiring people to be saved but at the logical conclusion of our arguments is is really hyper calvinism mm. um but uh but yeah
1: i did i did want to bring that up a little bit because i am a super lapsarianism but at the same time i do believe uh there is a general love i think the bible does teach that uh for all yeah the common yeah general love yeah. for all
0: yeah we distinguish between the salvific love that god has for his elect where he actually saves mm-hmm. them and brings them into the mm-hmm. kingdom and then there's the common love where the scriptures talk mm-hmm. about the rain falling on the just and the unjust mm-hmm. god and the fact that god doesn't kill us all for our sin right now yeah um yeah yeah
1: and then once again i, I did want to highlight when you're when you're sitting in that coffee shop debating whether uh, to evangelize and you don't know if it's ordained for you or not. Well, there's a very real sense just in the case of Paul saying, if you go on that skiff, you won't be saved. Where you can say to yourself, if I don't go forward, that person won't be saved. There's, there's a very real sense in which that's the case because you don't know. You don't know if you were ordained or not. So when you're deciding right. what to do, what do you have to do? I have to go on what God's told me to do. I have to love God.
0: Right, and that that's why we, right? We that's why yeah. we, as, you know, the churches. We share the gospels to the whole world. We send people to different nations. We just we don't know who's going to be saved, mm-hmm. but we know that God works through that means in order. Yes, He has ordained the means, um, but He has through. He works with those means to bring His people into His kingdom. So really, the the chance factor, the statistical factor, really doesn't have any uh, sway on the argument at all. It doesn't.
1: Mm You could probably skip to the next section. I think we were done on that.
0: Yeah, we were done with that section. Uh, So the next section here, he gets in that we're going to play. See, it's at the uh, 43, about the 43-minute mark. Let's see if I can find it here. So he he gets into Romans 9 a little bit, um, and he focuses – on a section Romans nine for verses one through five, I believe it is. Um, but we'll get through this here.
1: Help them, like that hasn't. Fun-
2: yeah, and I, I agree. You can you can love your neighbor, but underlying that, you have to believe that it's possible that God doesn't. salvifically. And again,
0: what bearing does that have on the argument that we're presenting? I don't know. It doesn't appear to have. It, it appears to be beside the point.
1: Yeah. What. Well, what no, go ahead. Regardless of whether or not God loves somebody salvifically, we are still to go out and evangelize. We, at that point, we don't, we don't know. And ultimately, our evangelism is for other purposes in glorifying God as opposed to that person's salvation. But regardless of whether or not that person is going to be saved, we are to evangelize them.
0: Right. And again, going back to our discussion before, Leighton has the same problem because he doesn't know in terms of the chances of who's going to be saved or not at least ultimately.
2: Salvifically, because I know that MacArthur and others talk about whether there's a common love that he has, like he sends rain and sunshine, but not a salvific love. Uh, Whereas A.W. Pink just comes right out and says, no, God hates some people and loves others and just come out and be real honest about it um, or real straightforward about it. I'm not trying to claim that somebody's dishonest, but... Um, And that's the point we're trying to get to is that does Paul, when he expresses his love for his fellow countrymen and willing to sacrifice his own life for their sake, is he more merciful than God for their souls? Because it sounds like he is if Calvinism is true, because those hardened Jews are the ones he goes on to to describe in in chapter nine. And the Calvinist interprets as being the reprobate, the non-elect. And so apparently on Calvinism, five point true bled five point Calvinism Um, that Paul has more merciful and and mercy and love towards these hardened Jews than God does who've been cut off because of their unbelief. Uh, And that's the problem with the system is it's not consistent. And and it ultimately makes the, the individual more merciful and loving and have the, the more, a more quote unquote, Godly Christ like motivation in evangelizing than the God who's sending them to evangelize, which is, is just backwards. Fundamentally.
1: Okay. So that's, that's a big (laughs) one, obviously. Uh, do you want, do you want to start on that or?
0: Yeah. So it's interesting that he pulls from this passage because in the very next section after Paul, so I have Romans nine here. Uh, I'll read the passage he's referring to says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from the race, according to the flesh in is the Christ, excuse me, who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. So he's saying that, okay, if we're saying that Calvinism is true and God has passed over some, but Paul is crying out for his brothers, then therefore he he must be more loving than God, um, which obviously cannot be true. You just look at the the next few passages, starting in verse six and going down into verse 16, all the way down to verse 24. God is clearly in control of what is going on here. He is uh, clearly sovereign. Uh, Verse 20, uh, or I'm sorry, verse 19 you will say to me then why does he still find fault for who can resist his will but who are you O man to answer back to god well what does molded say to its molder why have you made me like this so paul obviously doesn't have this in mind when he's declaring that god is sovereign in his choice and can do whatever he wants with his creation paul is obviously not seeing inconsistency here in holding god's sovereignty and crying out for his brothers
1: yeah um so I want to bring up an example that hopefully uh, will be helpful in illustrating our point. Uh, I'm sure Layton has prayed for uh, people who are sick and uh, dying and they're in a lot of pain and God has not necessarily answered that prayer. Their sickness continues to get worse and they end up dying. Uh, In that case, would Layton say that he was more, Loving than God because he had a desire that God didn't fulfill. Because obviously God could have both healed them, removed their pain, and and, and prevented them from dying. Right. Uh, and Leighton desired that, but obviously God didn't desire it in some sense because He didn't, he didn't bring it to past. And Leighton would have to admit God has the power to do so. So from his perspective, would he would he say that, oh yes, I was more loving than God? Obviously not. I'm sure right now he's recoiling in horror at the thought. So, what's going on here in this case, God has different and better reasons for what he's doing than Leighton's reason for removing the pain and suffering from this person and allowing them to stay on this earth a little while longer. We know from Romans 8 that um, everything works out for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's, that's everything, even sickness and death. So, while we don't necessarily see in this life what's what's, how specifically that necessarily benefited me or someone else, it does. We have that in God's word and we take it by faith that that's true. So going back to Paul's example, Paul uh, desires the salvation of people that that might not necessarily come to pass. I think it's a very similar thing. I, as a Calvinist, um, none of my family is saved. I wouldn't say any of them were saved, at least in, in my immediate family that I'm aware of. And I do desire them to be saved. And yet, in the back of my mind, I know that that might not happen, that God might not uh, regenerate them and cause them to believe. So even though I desire it, I'm okay with that. I recognize that God is is greater, he's better, his will, uh, that's to be done, is more important than my desire. And I think Paul probably had a, a very similar mindset. And that really goes back to what we were talking about earlier about where's your source of love? Does it is it just on centered on man or does it flow from God first? Because when I look at my family I do love them. Uh but when I look at God it's it's as if I didn't love them at all in a sense. They they're they're nothing compared to him. And I think Paul probably was expressing a similar sentiment.
0: Yeah, I would completely agree. And it and it goes back to Paul's complete argument throughout this chapter at least in the early parts of it, is, yes, I understand where the Israelites are in the predicament. I mean, they had so much common grace, give, or not just mm-hmm. common grace, but special revelation, special uh, get grace given to them. Like Paul says in verse 4, they had the adoption, the glory, they had the covenants, they had the law, worship promises. Ev- they, had, they had it all. They held the whole suite, and they rejected it. And Paul is grieved because of that. But Paul, like you said, and having in the back of your mind, um, or later on in the forefront of his mind, I guess, but understanding that God in his sovereignty is still in control, and Paul recognizing that and anticipating man's arguments that would come from that, even arguments that Paul himself might exhibit in his own flesh. You know, uh, like verse 19, who will you say to me? Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And this is, I think, very similar to some of the arguments that Leighton brings up, well, if God has chosen what's going to happen, if God has simply chosen that you know, Jacob, he's going to love and Esau he's going to hate, then why does he still find fault for what I do? You know, or if he hardens me or hardens others, how can he still find fault with, with, what is, with what I do? Well, because he is the one who created you and can do what he wants. So Paul doesn't see any inconsistency here. He cries out for his brothers, but he still understands that God is sovereign and his will will be done, and he submits to that. He puts himself aside in spite of uh, his cries for his fellow countrymen.
1: Exactly, and Jesus tells us, uh, unless you hate mother and father, uh, you're not worthy of me. Essentially, and that that he didn't obviously mean you shouldn't be going around hating right. your mother and father, but in comparison to God, yeah, it looks like hate. Um, you're not necessarily. If you love God so much that you're willing to say thy will be done, even if that means the non-election, the, the condemnation of your family members, so be it. That's that's what we were told.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah, uh, one other thing I wanted to point out. Um uh going to First Timothy chapter two, um, because Leighton brings this up at least once in here. He talks about God or at least Christ desiring all people to be saved. Um, and this goes back to the passage in, in 1 Timothy 2. Uh, this is a very famous, or, or I guess you could say one of the go-to passages that is used uh, by, the, by advocates or by synergists to show that God desires all people to be saved and that Jesus gave himself up for all. So I just want to read this here and talk about this in passing because Leighton does uh, bring this up. So it says in 1 Timothy 2, first of all, yeah, and for context' sake, this is Paul talking to Timothy, uh, uh, giving him pastoral advice and to stay true to the faith. It says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, uh, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man or men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So Leighton would interpret this verse to mean that Jesus desires all individuals to be saved and that he would have given himself up as a ransom for all men individually. And we discussed this somewhat in our last episode when we talked about Uh, Christ's atonement for all versus his elect and the problems that come with that. Uh, But this verse is really talking about based on the context it's talking about all types of people, not all people without distinction individually because he says in verse two for Kings and all who are in high positions, he's clearly talking about categories. He can't be talking about all people. Uh, Because we know from other passages of Scripture that all will not be saved. Jesus said in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So there's explicit teaching in Scripture that not all, even those who claim the name of Christ, there will be those among the visible church who will go to hell because they really never believed and rested in Christ for salvation. So I want to say that in passing, um, and obviously we would have differences on the atonement as particular Baptists, Reformed Baptists. We believe that Jesus died for a particular people and that atonement was applied to them only. It wasn't a general atonement that was made and then you simply have to believe and accept it. Uh, We see problems with that and refer to our last episode. We do an in-depth discussion on that, Uh, but I just wanted to bring that up in passing.
1: All right. Do you want to move on to the next section?
0: Yep. So in this next example, uh, Leighton uses the example of a police officer uh, to try and, uh, as a way of uh, talking about the causation of evil. So we will go to that section real quick. Anybody,
1: including the synergist, trying to sit around and guess, okay, what's God's secret will here? Is it... Uh... Should uh, Jesus be put to death or not? The answer is, on one hand, no, and on another hand, yes. But from our perspective, we would say that it was wrong for them who put Jesus to death to have done it. And they should not have done it, even if it was God's um, secret will, uh, his decretive will that that happened. Um, so from our perspective, and
2: this is why we use the policing analogy to demonstrate that even police officers can bring about an evil event, the selling of drugs at a particular time and place without being the causal determiner of the criminals involved in that event. And so if if a police officer can pull it off, then, of course, God can pull it off. God does not have to determine the desires of Pilate and uh, Judas and all of the, the people. Involved in that event in order to ensure his victory omniscience can accomplish that he can know their intentions and desires and use them and manipulate the circumstances to ensure an evil event takes place without um, having anything to do with tempting men to evil or causally determining their desires and therefore they're justly held accountable. Why? Because they freely desired and acted upon those desires. They weren't causally determined to desire those things and to act upon those desires. That's it.
0: So Layton tries to use this example of a police officer. So it basically a sting operation. So a police officer goes and, you know, he sets up a, a fake name or he pretends to be a drug dealer in order to catch those who are, who are in the act. Of selling drugs or whatever it is. So he, he tries to use this and say, okay, if, if a police officer can do this, then God can do it. And this is a, a to be blunt, a terrible analogy. It, it's a terrible analogy. And here's why. Uh, one, God is not beholden to the standards of men in order to be validated. You know, he, saying things like, well, if a police officer can do it, God can do it. No, it's if God can do it, the police officer can do it. That's the language that we need to have. Uh, and, and two, this is not a good analogy because it, it falls into a category error. You're putting God at the same level as uh, a police officer in this sense. So you have to assume that they both have the same motives. They both are going to be acting in the same way uh, with the same intentions, et cetera. Uh, in this example, what he's saying about a police officer, police officer is lying in order to bring about a good cause. He may have good intent. He may be trying to bring justice, but he's still lying. He's engaged in a lie in order to bring about something good. God cannot lie. The scripture says that in, in the book of Hebrews, God cannot lie. He swore by himself in terms of bringing about salvation for his people. So he is not able to lie. It's against his nature. So to to use this as an example and an analogy is, is just a bad analogy. It doesn't work. It falls into a category error. You have two different categories of beings doing two different things. God cannot lie. The police officer is lying and you're holding God to the standard of what man does in order to, in order to validate uh, God at this point.
1: So what I took away from this example that he provided is Leighton flowers is okay with God causing evil because yeah. that uh, in, he, in this, no, go ahead. Because in this, in this example, the police officer in the sting operation causes evil to happen, uh, both in the fact that uh, the people buying the drugs are breaking the law right. and in the fact that uh, they're acting on evil desires because they're who knows what they're going to do with it, whether it's personal use, which is wrong, or if they're going to resell it, say they resell it to kids. Right. Uh, in, in this example, Layton is okay with God causing evil. So he should not necessarily have an issue. Obviously, we're, we have a, a little bit different view, but he should not necessarily have an issue with us saying God causes evil to happen because he's okay with that conceptually, at least in some sense. Obviously, we think that God causes evil slightly differently, although whenever he causes evil, it's always good. God... um when evil events happen, they are for good in some sense, and God causes them for the good, not for the evil. So I don't see necessarily why Leighton would have a, a problem, or if he does have a problem, he needs to be a little bit more specific about why God causing things through secondary causes results in the evil being imputed to God. Because in this example, Evil was done, and yet it's not imputed to the police officer because he did it for entirely different reasons. And then second point, uh, we we frequently see people objecting. And I I believe Leighton, even in this uh, podcast or this uh, video, said that uh, he he condemned Calvinists for saying that God would decree rape or uh, some such thing. And if God is, if Leighton is okay with God causing some evil, because in the example, some evil was caused, shouldn't he be okay with God causing all evil in some sense? And he'd he'd have to admit that God did cause uh, even things as evil as rape in some sense. But there is no, there's no um, line in which you can say, oh, well, God, yeah, God can cause some evil, but, mass murder or whatever the heinous crime might be. That's too much for God to cause. Uh, at some point he said that, um, I think he was alluding to the fact that God didn't cause COVID, which we would obviously disagree with because we think God ultimately is the cause of everything. But there's, there's no line. As long as you're willing to say, yeah, God can cause some evil. It, 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 it needs to be that God can cause any evil. There's, there's no line here that was like, Oh, that's too much evil for God to cause. It doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah, and what's interesting is if you look at the nature of of Christ's death, you're talking about someone who is truly innocent being put to death. Not only a truly innocent man who was not touched by the fall of Adam, but but God himself. Um, The second person of the Trinity in human flesh was put to death. He was murdered. He was conspired against. He was uh, unjustly put to death. So, I think it's safe to say that this is the greatest evil that ever happened, and so anything less than that—if uh, we're going—if he's going to admit that the greatest evil that ever happened in, in the history of humanity, in the history of the world, was the Son of God being put to death at the hands of sinful men—and he says, "Yeah, that was caused. Yeah, God didn't decree the desires, but you know, He, he still caused it to happen. He, he ensured that all these events happened at just the right time." But to say anything less than that. Uh, relatively speaking was not decreed by God or, or at least in terms of the desires, it, uh, it I think is very inconsistent.
1: Mm-hmm. Because in the, in the example, the police officer is a cause of that event. Obviously he, he yeah. set
0: up the event to happen. Yeah. He orchestrated all of the means. Now, so again, Layton would, I think where he's differentiating, he's saying, yeah, an event might happen based on God's, uh, providential, if it uses the term loosely, providential means of ensuring that it's going to happen. He just didn't decree the desires. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know how that plays into other events. If he says that uh, if God actually brings about evil events to happen in other ways, I I don't know if he does that. But at the very least, desires are not orchestrated by God, or at least decreed by God.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to get into desires at some point, because that was one of his fundamental questions to us yeah but we'll we'll save that for another section
0: yep all right we're going to jump ahead here now in this section he actually asks us a question um he wants to know what we mean when we say that god is not the author of evil we'll go ahead and play this clip here then we'll discuss i can find it the author of evil, I think, is really where he's getting at, um, and that's a that's a problem. Obviously, we as Calvinists would say that God is not the author of evil; that evil
2: only comes from the creature. Um, uh, and not- what, what's that mean when you say God's not the author of evil? What can you define that for us? Now, the reason that that was added in later, because Calvin actually says. God authors evil in one of his quotes. We've played it before here, and y'all have seen it before. It's in his institutes. Um, but later catechisms, after he's called out on that, um, and, and that's repudiated, the, the later catechisms and, and, and um, uh, statements of faith, uh, creeds that they write, they clearly say that God is not the author of evil. Now, the reason they put that in there is because the Remonstrants and others who were fighting against Calvinism at the time we're calling that blasphemous to put that onto God whenever the Bible clearly says, God is not, is not the author of confusion and sin is confusion. And if you say God's not the author of confusion, then that's one thing he doesn't author. And so they, they added those things into the catechisms to try to say, or into their statements of faith to try to say, okay, we don't believe God authors evil and confusion and all those kinds of things. But then they'd never define really what author means because I've not seen a a distinction with a difference between what you call sovereign decree, i.e. theistic determinism and authoring. In fact, one of my favorite Calvinists that live today that I know is Chris date and he uses authorship, God authoring a book as his example of how sovereignty works. Uh, Doug uh, Wilson does the same thing in his debate with Steve Gregg. He actually uses uh, an author of a book to illustrate how sovereignty works. Um, And so, how how a Calvinist can maintain that God is not the author of evil yet maintain that God is meticulously, uh, decreeing, determining, causally determining, uh, decisively decreeing all things that come to pass, including temptations, evil desires, all the things, pride, lust, everything. And he's not the author of those things, but he is the causal determiner of them. What, what does that mean? Can you define what you mean by author? In other words, Describe a God that does author evil and compare it to the God you believe in and tell me what the difference is between those two gods. If you could do that for me, if, if, if that's a challenge. In the Calvinist, and the side chat, T. Grogan, some of you guys have been posting. Here's the challenge. Describe the author of evil, the God who does author evil, and then describe your God and show me the difference between the God who is authoring evil and the one who isn't. And, and show me the distinction with the difference between those two forms of God. And that I would really, really help me. Uh, and just. So
0: great question, Mr. Flowers. Great question. And we want to take some time to talk about this. So the clip you were playing right before uh, you went into your response here, uh, I was referring to our confession of faith, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. It's chapter 5, paragraph 4. It says, The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifests themselves in, in his providence that his determinate counsel, extendeth itself even to the first fall, and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully boundeth, and otherwise ordereth and governeth, in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends, yet so as the sinfulness of their acts proceedeth only from the creatures, and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. So you want us to be able to distinguish between a God who authors evil and a God who doesn't. The answer to this question really goes back to what is evil? What is evil itself? Because if we believe that God created all things and that God is the causation of all things, then everything that actually exists must be from God, right? Scriptures teach that, Jesus Christ created everything that is visible and invisible, heaven and on earth. Everything that exists was created by him and for him. So if we say that God is actually the author of evil, evil must be something that God actually created. So that would be a God who actually authors evil. Now, what we would say in the Reformed tradition, and what we believe is biblical, is that God did not create evil and cannot be the author of evil because evil doesn't actually exist as a substance. Evil is simply the lack of that which is good. And we see this in the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. It actually discusses this. And this is uh, from Dr. James Dulzall. Um, I don't know if you've actually read any of his. uh, He's a Reformed Baptist minister or pastor. um, I would highly encourage you to read. The article is called Agency Concurrence, in evil agency concurrence in evil a study in divine providence in the Journal of IRBS Theological Seminary uh, from 2019. Uh, very helpful if you want further study on this. but he quotes the Westminster Shorter Catechism question 14 it says quote "Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And he also quotes from First John 3:4 says "Sin is lawlessness. So sin is not a substance that actually exists." Sin is just simply the lack of that which is good, where good ought to be. So if sin is not something that exists as a substance, God could not have created it in his decree because sin is just non-existence. It it doesn't actually exist, and God cannot create non-being. So that's how we would answer that and say that God is not the author of evil. Another thing uh, that we can note here, and Dr. Dolezal actually points this out as well, he says, uh, "quote, but he does not author uh, he but he does not author that evil outcome for at least two reasons. First, it is not due to lack of good form in God that evil results, but from the lack of good form in the creature. The creature's deformity alone provides the formal reason for the evil of any action. We might think of this as formal causality in a negative mode. Second, since divine nondetermination." does not result in any term of production. There is nothing evil positively produced by God when he withholds any form of good from the creature's will or action. And he goes on to say, obviously the entire argument that God is not the author of evil only works on the assumption that God is not naturally required to give every requisite moral good to every creature, even if he requires such good from them by way of command or precept. So that's another thing. When God is decreeing evil, he's not actually creating anything evil positively uh, by decreeing it, because evil does not actually exist as a substance. So that's how I would uh, say from the Reformed tradition and from Scripture that we can distinguish between a God who authors evil and a God who doesn't author evil. And Sean, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah,
1: I would... I would propose an alternate definition, not that I think it's contradictory, but uh, a God that would be evil would be a God that brings evil about not because there's a good result coming from it, but because it is evil and also is the direct cause of that evil. Uh, obviously, we believe God is bringing about evil events, just like in the, um, the uh, example of the police officer but the reason for doing it is not an evil reason. Same, same for us. So, and also is not the direct cause. It's not God doing the sinning. It's his will working out that involves sinful creatures doing sinful things. So in that sense, God is not the author of evil. I can't speak to what Calvin meant when he said God is the author of evil. Uh, I, I would hope, I don't know, I, I could be wrong, that he meant it in, in the sense of that God is the author of events in time, and therefore he's the author of evil in that sense, uh, because evil events do happen in time. Uh, in that case, we would be using the word author there in slightly different senses. But when we say God is not the author of evil, we mean not that he's not the cause of evil, just like the police right. officer, which again, the cause of something evil that happened, but that he didn't want it because it was evil or he didn't want evil to happen. Uh, He wanted good to happen and just used evil to accomplish that means.
0: Right. Yeah. We, we still hold that God is the cause of evil. Um, And those even talks about this, the passage in acts where it says that in God, we live and move and have our being. We cannot exist apart from God. We are Mm -hmm. not, I'll say, meaning we, we, can, we are not self-sustaining beings. We have, God must sustain us in order to exist and, and for us to even move. So even those secondary causes are moved by God as well. So yes, we would say that those things are caused uh, by God. But the nature of evil, uh, I guess, uh, exempts God from being the, the author of evil in terms of creating it and being culpable for it the nature of God, not necessarily uh, the God, not being called, required to decree anything, all, all that, which is good. And also the nature of evil itself as being a non-substance.
1: All right. I'm all right. good on that. If you want to move on.
0: Yep. All right.
1: And You're I think m- this next section will be quite meaty because this seemed to be his fundamental criticism.
0: Yes. How, yeah, this is can, this was definitely yeah. something that was brought up multiple times in d- yeah. probably different ways. Uh, yeah. Let's see if I got this the right one. I think
1: Basically, I did. Basically, how does God how can God give us desires and then hold us responsible for acting on those desires? Right. Really. Now obviously we do believe in judicial hardening and right. uh, yeah. make may make someone worse than they the see were that before. in Pharaoh. Exactly. Back a little bit. Although even that Right. Um, and God um, may bring that event um, about to pass um, for some other reason uh, that would be good. But ultimately, it's still my desire that's done it. God
2: hasn't necessarily... So, you know, notice you said, ultimately, it's still my desire that has done it. Okay? He's not acknowledging, as somebody was quoting earlier, that these guys don't understand Calvinism. <laughs> they accuse us of not understanding Calvinism. They don't understand Calvinism. Um, th- this- well, I mean
0: yeah, you, you seem to indicate that you don't, but
2: this is the problem is that you, you continually to point back to desire as the, the basis for the blameworthiness of man, as if desires themselves are not equally decreed by God as every other thing that comes to pass. And and so if you want to re, if you want to re, uh, word
0: your, so Leighton, sorry, I'm, I'm stopping as a that's thinking fine. things, of. yeah. So, Leighton is assuming that again, that if desires are decreed by God to the creature, therefore, we are not, you know, we can't be held responsible. He's still pushing this, e- even in this statement here. It, it, that basic assumption is going through well, this uh, yeah, response.
1: Before we delve into the substance of this, he does also seem to think that we're confused and we're not saying that we believe God determines desires or at least that, that was the impression I was getting on throughout.
0: We do believe video. that.
1: Yeah, we, we do. If there was un- any unclarity about that, we do believe that God de- um, decrees people's desires Absolutely. and gives them those desires. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're not confused about what Calvinism is. We do recognize it. We just don't necessarily think that results in us being morally culpable, which is what we were, trying to, to express in the previous podcast perhaps we didn't do it as clearly as we had hoped but that was the point we were not trying to dance around the issue of whether god gives desires or not
2: right statements of faith to say something like god ordains whatsoever comes to pass except for the desires of creatures then that, you know, I mean, it's great, but until you do that, you're going to continue to step into this same quandary over and over again, where you keep pushing back to men's desires as if those aren't equally under God's sovereign determination as every other thing that happens in the world.
0: Now I'd be interested to know what he, what led him to think that again, because I don't think we ever said that we did or didn't. I think it was pretty clear that we believe that God decrees all things. Um, but we, we do believe that God has decreed everything, including the desires of men. And that is what our confession, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, teaches. And that's what we hold to.
1: made me do it. Um, he hasn't changed my desire necessarily. Now, obviously, we do believe in judicial hardening. And,
2: right. Uh, yeah. Make- what is God hardening if not the free will of the creature? What is God uh you hear James White talking about how God restrains evil or he permits evil all the time. Okay, what, what is he restraining and or permitting if not the free will of the creature? Is he is he decreeing them to want to do something and then restraining them from doing what he decreed for them to want to do? That that makes no sense. You've just got God restraining things he's decreed. Um when you talk about restraining and or hardening and or uh permitting, all of these are words that presume libertarian freedom of the will. Otherwise, You've just got God restraining and hardening and permitting that which he has determined or decreed beforehand and it, uh, it, it become yeah so, so we
0: we do believe that we actually can choose based on our nature we just do not believe that our wills are outside of God's sovereign providential uh, providential hand yeah
1: um for him to say it presumes libertarian free will no it just presumes free will and obviously we have compatibleist free will it doesn't presume libertarian free will because god in his decree can say i desire an end and i also desire to change this person's behavior in order to achieve that end such as the hardening of pharaoh's heart he can he can say okay it's in my decree that um pharaoh will pharaoh will be this way, and I'm going to make him act worse than he normally would in order to achieve my ends. That's, that's perfectly fine. I don't see a logical problem with it. But this really gets to the heart of why Leighton essentially believes that because our desires are determined that we're somehow morally not culpable for what we do. And that is not the basis of our judgment. Paul does actually say something that would result in us being able to basically not have sin imputed to us. In um, Oh, where are my notes? There we go. In, uh, Romans chapter five, verse 13, he says for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. So if there was not a law, then sin would not be imputed to us. That is the only requirement, as, as far as I can see, the Bible teaching for how is sin imputed to us. It's not on the basis of our desire. Uh, what I, I see nowhere in the Bible where Leighton would get the idea that God has revealed to us explicitly that you have to have a, a desire given to you by God in order, or that desire somehow, because God has not given you a desire that you're not morally culpable. I don't see that concept being explicitly stated or implicitly stated in the scriptures. The only thing we're judged on is fulfillment of God's law, or if we're in Christ, uh, we are not judged by that, but so uh, I just lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> yeah, it happens sometimes. Uh,
0: Well, essentially, yeah, yeah, no. And I think part of this goes back to uh, a, a biblical view of man. You know, if, if we, we not only believe that we are held accountable for our desires based on what we choose to do based on our desires, but we are under Adam's curse. Exactly. When we were born, we are imputed sinful from birth through Adam, through our covenant head. Now, I don't know what personally what Leighton's views are on that, um, I, I'm not going to speak to that, but I think it's important to note that we also hold, not only it's the desires, but we're held culpable based on our sinful nature that leads to those sinful choices. And then Leighton, but Leighton would just, I think, rebut and say, well, those choices are determined by God, therefore you can't be held culpable. Uh, but we say, yes, you can. God has given us uh, the ability to choose that which is right according to his law and to choose that which is wrong, which is against his law. Now, unless you are saved, you are not going to really choose that which is good. We believe that Romans 3 teaches that there is none who does good, no, not one, meaning that we can't actually choose that which is good. And Leighton would obviously, uh, I think, to some extent disagree with that. Um, But we do believe that we cannot actually choose that which is good. And even the appearance of good actions done by men that appear to be good from a human perspective or even uh, uh, superficially to God's law are really sinful in God's eyes because they are not done out of love for him. They are not done in the clothed righteousness of Christ and out of a true desire to please him. And so we are held accountable for that, but we are bound, our, our wills are bound to our sinful nature. Uh, and, and because of that, we are not able to really choose that, which is good. And I think that having a proper anthropology is key yes. to this discussion. And I, I, don't think that Leighton addressed that in this video, um, but I think that's important to to bring up as we're discussing these issues of choosing and culpability.
1: exactly, yeah, God doesn't give us a wicked desires just because He wants to or just because you know he He wants us to act evilly. He gave us wicked desires when Adam fell because he put a curse upon the entire human race, so Leighton would have to say, well, that was unjust, or he, he may not believe it, obviously, but uh, th- that's what the Bible teaches, but he, in order to say that, oh, it's unfair for God to have given you wicked desires at all, he'd have to say, well, it was unjust for God to give wicked desires at the fall, and I just, I don't see that. I think that is a perfectly, on God's part, he had the right to do that, to curse Adam's posterity. The only other way I could see him trying to get around... Um, this would be say, okay, so God decree or God works out his decree by doing something just, aka putting out uh, or giving us a sinful nature after the fall, but God decreed the fall to happen. So certainly that makes God culpable, right? And my answer would be no, it actually doesn't, because God can work well, God can decree the fall to happen and still not be responsible for it, just like in Leighton's police officer example again the police officer caused something to happen, which didn't necessarily result in the police officer having uh, the action be imputed to him as evil. Same thing with the fall is how we would view that. So, and to wrap around to my previous thought, the only thing we're judged upon is is the law. Did we keep it or did we not? Or, or if we're in Christ, then we, we, we are seen as having... Uh, kept the law completely we have the righteous robes of christ so there regardless of whether or not god has given us a desire he's not obligated to give us a new desire he if he causes it to be born again that's that's wonderful praise to his name but he was not obligated to do us no He, he could have left us all in adam's state so if he's not obligated to give us new desires but the law still needs to be fulfilled I don't understand how we wouldn't still be morally culpable. It's not that we don't have the ability in the sense of like we're physically unable to, there's a difference between me telling someone, okay, go jump over that mountain. Cause obviously they're physically incapable of doing it. And me telling someone don't lie, but because they desire to lie, they desire whatever benefit that does it. They uh, aren't held morally culpable for that. They had, they had the ability in a sense to not lie But in another sense, they didn't have the ability because they didn't desire to. And God is not responsible. He's not obligated to give us good desires.
0: Right. And yeah, that's an excellent point. That goes back to what Dulzell talked about, that God is not, if God were actually required and morally required to give us good desires all the time and then he gave us bad desires, then he could not actually hold us responsible for exactly. that. But God is not held to any standard outside of himself. He is the standard itself. He is righteousness itself. So if God decrees that something is going to happen, and not creating anything evil positively in the creature, and not creating non-existence, since evil is not actually a substance that exists, it's simply the lack of the good, then God cannot now, be held culpable for the desires that he decrees in his uh, in his creatures. And one thing I want to say in passing, I want to read this section, again, from Belzal, talking about the difference between the robot and a puppet, and or I'm sorry, an agent and a puppet, which I think might be helpful here in this discussion. He says, quote, some protest that this thick account of divine providence turns man into a mere puppet. This common objection says both too much and too little. It says too much in that it must presuppose that for God to be at work in a creature, the creature must not be working. Puppets are not agents, but are merely patients, receivers of action, but not doers in their own right. Angels and men would only be puppets if they were pure patients and not also agents. Being caused by another is not what renders a puppet a puppet, but rather being a mere patient, a non-agent. But the puppet objection also says too little, inasmuch as God's activity in the creature is far more interior and pervasive than those of a puppet master to a puppet. Puppet masters only push and pull an independently existing object, whereas with respect to God, humans are not independently existing beings. He not only moves them, but he makes them be at every moment in their existence. In this consideration, their dependency upon God is profoundly greater than the dependency of puppets upon. Those who move them. And I think that's important here because we do believe we are agents. Uh, And Leighton brought up the example. I don't know if he did yet, but he talked about, uh, you know, we're not just an instinctive animal, just acting out, you know, what is essentially pre-programmed in them. You know, we, we don't believe that we do believe we are actual agents that are making choices that have real desires and real choices. We're not just puppets passively receiving data from God and spitting it out the other side. That's very different than an active agent that makes choices and has desires and acts according to their natures. So I just want to say that in passing.
1: All right. I think uh, the next clip is the last one, correct?
0: Yes. Yep. We're on our last clip. Yes. And then we and will wrap things up. This
1: next clip wasn't necessarily a theme throughout, but I did want to highlight it. Yeah,
0: we think it's very important to, yeah. to bring this up. Um, let me start back a few minutes so we get some context.
1: Go out and evangelize. Um, you, God will lead us into more and more truth, and I, I would ask that you uh, pray for leading that truth into that truth. But if... Um, you do see these two things as true, and you understand that the scriptures are true in and of themselves, um, you, yeah, even if you don't understand exactly how
2: it works. And the only reason the confusion between the concept of election and the concept of go out and evangelize is because Calvinists have done a kind of a hyper focus on, a, uh, on election to mean that God has pre-selected who will and won't be regenerated so as to be a cause to believe the gospel. Um, If you understand election biblically, we understand that God elects one, the nation of Israel, not to the neglect of all the other nations of the world. The the first biblical doctrine of election, you have to understand is national election. He elected the nation of Israel, not because it was a great nation. He didn't, in other words, it's unconditioned upon their morality or their greatness or their worth. And so when you talk about unconditional election, we would agree with that aspect of it. It doesn't mean it's unconditioned upon Faith or not, it means it's unconditioned. They're, they're chosen as the, the mouthpiece through which the Messiah and his message would come. The messengers would be chosen from this nation. That is the doctrine of election in the scripture. God chose this nation to be the mouthpiece. He didn't choose this nation to the neglect of all the other people. He chose this nation to be a blessing to all the other people. Secondly, we have the the election of individuals, Elijah, Paul, other Israelites who are chosen to be messengers the ones who speak the truth, to be the mouthpiece of God, to speak the truth, to write the truth, to be the, the ones who brought the word to the world, um, they were chosen for this purpose. Okay. Now, notice they're not chosen to the neglect of the people who aren't chosen. They're chosen for the benefit of the people who are not chosen. So again, they're not chosen because they're more worthy of being chosen or more moral uh, and deserving of being chosen. Uh, so it's unconditional in that sense. It's not based upon the good or the bad they do but it is based upon God's purpose and his plan to bring redemption to the world, to bless all the nations of the world. So you got two points of election already, nothing to do with individuals being effectually chosen for salvation. The third choice is who the message will go to first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, to the good and the bad alike. It even says, so it's not again, conditioned upon their morality. God can elect to send his message of redemption, even to pagan uh, prostitutes and Gentiles and he can, he can establish covenant with them if he wants to. Who are you to question God? If God wants to establish covenant, even with a female prostitute from a, a pagan Samaritan nation, if God wants to do that, who are you to question God? Um, and so these, again, three elections are choices of God, and nothing has to do with an individual being chosen for no apparent reason before the world began for effectual salvation. Three aspects of biblical election— which the Calvinists, if you were sitting down with them, would have to agree. All three of those things are choices of God with regard to redemption. All of them are, are well established in the Matthew 22 parable of the banquet as well. Then you have the fourth choice, uh, and the Matthew 2 parable represents that with the, the lesson of the story. Many are called, few are chosen. Well, how does he call them? Through the nation he's chosen, through the prophets he's chosen, and the message he sends both f- first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, okay? That's the many are called. And this he indiscriminately sends that message, that call, that invitation to the wedding banquet, indiscriminately to all. But few are elect. Who are the elect? The elect are those who are both good and bad, morality. So it's not conditioned upon their morality. So it's unconditional election on that, that front. But what is it based on then? Just arbitrarily, these guys are picked for no apparent reason before the world began, just for some secret reason, only known to God, he just picked some people and passed by over. It's kind of a divine lottery. yeah, there's a real reason behind it, we just don't know what it is, and God just picked people. Is that it? No, the Bible says this one's clothed in the right wedding garments, that one's not, so because he's not clothed in the right wedding garments, he's cast out there's a condition there it's not on his morality. We know that the gospel went to the good and the bad alike. it's not based upon morality. So who are the ones he grants entrance into the kingdom, into the banquet? Those who come clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the wedding garments, through faith. So it's not conditioned upon the morality of the individual being chosen, but it is conditioned upon his faith in Christ. And so what the Calvinist has done is they've said because salvation is not conditioned upon the morality and works of people, therefore it's also not conditioned upon whether they believe in Jesus or not. And that is not something ever established in the Bible. Paul does just the opposite. It's not conditioned upon one right
1: there. So that that was really what I wanted to hit on right there, that Leighton was saying that we believe that salvation is not is not based on faith in Jesus. And that's that's not correct. No well, I've I've heard of one calvinist ever in my entire life who believed that because someone was elect from eternity they were saved from eternity but that is not a common belief whatsoever that we hold when we say that yes election is not based upon any good or morality foreseen in the individual right salvation is conditional upon faith in christ now if you are elect god will work it so that you have that saving faith. Absolutely. But election and salvation are not the same thing. So for him to say Calvinists believe that salvation is not predicated on faith in Jesus Christ, that is entirely wrong. Um, I'd like to think that he misspoke there, but it does seem to be sort of the premise of his entire point. So I'm not quite sure I I can grant him that. But, and that is, it is a little surprising that for someone who spends a lot of time with Calvinism, he would make that mistake because that's very simple. But to be absolutely 100% clear, no, salvation is entirely conditional upon faith in Christ. You must have faith in Christ in order to be saved.
0: Absolutely. It's just
1: election that is not.
0: Absolutely. We just simply believe that God has given us that gift and it is not something that, based on our free will so to speak in, in terms of how leighton thinks of it uh, that we bring ourselves to the point where we can actually choose now he would say that god has graciously uh, i think brought us to that point where we can choose uh, whether to accept the work of christ or not uh, i'm but- not sure that he would actually say that i think he would just say that we had the ability in of
1: ourselves i'm not even sure he would attach grace to that necessarily okay if that gets that gets into the idea of like where, where does that even come from? And that, right. Comes yeah, I, from think, God, I think he calls but...
0: it, I think he calls it provisionism and Leighton, feel free to correct us if we're wrong yeah. on this. Yeah, um, exactly. Because we're, we're willing to be corrected. But, uh, at the, I, my understanding of your position is that God has brought us, or at least given us the grace in order for us to believe in him. And it sounds very similar to classical Arminianism, even though you would not call yourself an Arminian. So, you know, feel free to, uh, to correct us on that if we're wrong. But we believe that God has given us the faith to believe, and we do actually believe. It's not like God is somehow in us believing for us. He causes us to believe by his power. He gives us that faith to believe. And I'm looking for uh, the passage here. It's in Philippians of having trouble uh, finding is my... Is it Philippians
1: 129? Is that yeah, Philippians
0: 1, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, if I can find it here. I'm not using Logos, Sean. Ah. I'm going to find this very quickly. Um,
1: Was that a a plug for Logos? Do we have a (laughs) concern
0: now? Logos is a great piece of software. Use it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so, uh, yes, Philippians 129. Paul says, uh, for it has been granted to you, and he's speaking to Christians, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. So it's explicit here that 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 belief has been granted to us. It's not something that we have inherent in us. So we absolutely believe that we actually do the belief, but God has given it to us. And as a result of regeneration, um, I I would uh, equivocate it to the domino effect. You know, God regenerates us. He gives us the faith. And from that, these things will necessarily happen. It's not going to deviate. So we say it's all an act of God, even though, yes, we are believing but it's not based on what we do. It is a result of God's work in us and granting us the faith and repentance to believe. And in doing so we are saved and we can consistently confess that God is truly the one who saved us and not ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we believe we can hold those things consistently and can show that from scripture.
1: And I'd also like to push back a tiny bit on Leighton's assertion that in his system, God's choosing is not or salvation is not predicated on morality or such because essentially what he's saying is you were you're not saved by your your morality, you're saved by your faith, which we we believe obviously too, but that faith comes from you, so in the end faith is obviously a morally good thing, it's commanded, so mm-hmm. he is saying you are saved by your morality, just Not all of the morality. It's just faith that's required, not the entirety of the law. And our point would be, well, God gives us the faith in the first place anyway. We didn't have it naturally. So that's why we can truly say it's not predicated on morality in any sense, period. Because even that came from God.
0: Right. Or or
1: morality foreseen in the individual, I
0: should say. Yeah, there's no desire or or morality that we can do that God looked and said, oh, that person's going to do that. I'm going to choose him. Yeah. And I, and I do think Layton actually tries to not say that here, you know, he's saying it's not based on something someone did morally.
1: Yes. Uh, No, no. He makes that point abundantly clear. I'm just saying ultimately at the end of the day, you sort of are saying it because faith is a moral thing. It's a good thing. It's not, not it's not a neutral thing.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. So, right. So we could say the logical conclusion of your argument is uh, Mr. Flowers that if you hold that God is not the one who gives us the faith and causes us to believe outside, um, outside of ourselves, then you're left with saying that we can actually do something that, which is good, which is believe on our own. So, and that's another problem that you have to deal with from your position.
1: All right. With that, I think I'm done. Do you have anything else, Dan?
0: No, no, I think that's good. Um, I'm trying to look at our time. I think we definitely did go over a normal time, um, yeah. but we wanted to make sure we, we try to represent Mr. Flowers accurately, and, and we wanted to hit some of these main points yeah. um, that, he, that he brought up. But thank you for joining us today. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we will be back into our study of the Second Lenten Baptist Confession of Faith, um, and we look forward to seeing you then. Take care. God bless.